And we tried very hard this week to uh, be able to locate the political attack ad that pro-abortionists have launched on television against Dr. Scott Jensen, who's running for governor in the state of Minnesota. And Dr. Jensen happens to be a member of the church where one of my brother-in-laws is a pastor. Now, what the attack ad video does is show a woman in a green dress chastising Dr. Jensen for being pro-life because she had to have an abortion of her son because of health reasons. And Dr. Jensen is too extreme for Minnesota. Well, the ad really grates me because it's so disingenuous. Number one, most people in America are not opposed to abortions in the case of rape, incest, or in the case of the life of a mother needing to be saved. Number two, Bad cases don't make good laws. Abortions in those cases are so rare, and they're relatively a very small number. 93% of abortions are elective. Someone finds out they're pregnant, it's not the right timing for them, they don't want to have this child or with this person, so they abort the baby. Number three, abortion is the most racist thing in America. In the past 30 years, there's been a 19-year segment uh, where African Americans declined in population primarily due to abortion. Uh, by the way, 66% of abortion clinics and abortion providers are within walking distance of minority communities. They're there because that's where their primary business is. And minority communities suffer a higher percentage of losses due to abortion than white communities do. That's the most racist thing in America right now. Number four, abortion in America gives no rights to the father. It is strictly a woman's body, and it's her right to choose. But should that child be born, that father will be obligated, and the society will hold him accountable to pay child support until that child is 18 years of age. Yet whether a child is born or not born, a father has absolutely no say in that. And sadly, I've ministered to men over the years, and, and even one from our church over the years, who had a, a wife who didn't want to have an extra child. So she went out and had an abortion, terminated it, and the husband, a very professional, uh, career-bound, successful, had absolutely no say whatsoever. Now, I must say that the biggest reason why these attack ads grate me, besides that a fellow brother in Christ is being attacked, is seeing ultimately the belittling of God, who is the author of life. In our text today, which is not directly a text on abortion, but it does portray God's love for people in utero and even before conception, as verse 5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Obviously, this is the call of God on prophet Jeremiah's life. And the gist of his ministry is going to be all about getting Judah to repent of their sin. And primarily their sin is that of idolatry and of abandoning God and getting them to return to God, to point them back to their first love, to love God. Thus our title for our sermon series, loving God, where we're looking at all the references to God's love for us and our responsibility in the book of Jeremiah that it teaches us to return that love 
to God. Now, I wrote my connection article called Loving God, introducing this sermon series, and I said, by worldly standards, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament was a miserable failure. For 40 years, he served as God's spokesperson to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. But when Jeremiah spoke, nobody listened. Consistently and passionately, he urged them to change their conduct but nobody moved. And he certainly never gained material success from his prophetic, prophetic office. He was poor and underwent severe deprivation to deliver his prophecies. He was even thrown into prison and a well for the messages he spoke. And he was taken to Egypt also against his will. Jeremiah experienced rejection from his neighbors, from his family, from false priests and prophets. In Israel, he experienced rejection from his friends and fellow Jews and even from those in authority. Throughout his life, Jeremiah stood alone, calling Israel back into a loving relationship with God and announcing to them if they did not return to God, they would face judgment. And the prophet is well known for announcing the new covenant and for weeping over his beloved Israel. For such devotion, Jeremiah became known as the weeping prophet. For he knew that Judah's lack of repentance and unwillingness to return to God meant sure and certain destruction. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 2 says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Jeremiah 3, 19 and 20. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman, unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. You know, in the eyes of the world, Jeremiah was a complete failure. But in the eyes of God, he was one of the most successful people in all of history. Success as measured by God doesn't involve numbers. It doesn't involve money. It doesn't involve acclaim or talent or the like. It involves the truth, faithfulness, and obedience. And regardless of the opposition and personal cost that Jeremiah faced, he was faithful to God and he courageously proclaimed the word of God. Well, today we're beginning our flyover over the book of Jeremiah, where we will discover what this major prophet has to teach us about loving God and what the consequences are in life for those who choose not to. American poet James Russell Lowell wrote these words in his poem, The Present Crisis. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. In the strife of truth and falsehood, for the good or evil, side. Although Jeremiah hesitated at first when God called him, he eventually surrendered to the Lord and became one of history's most decisive spiritual leaders. And tragically, the people that needed his leadership the most were the ones who rejected him. And they were the ones who turned their backs on God and turned their backs upon God's word. Folks, you have to understand this. As never before, in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, in our villages, in our towns and cities, in our states, in our nation, we need decisive leaders and decisive Christians who will obey the word of God. The late Roy Wad Rogers once quipped, if you ever injected truth into politics, 
you'd have no politics. And the politician does ask, is it popular? What do the ratings say? The diplomat asks, is it safe? The supervisor asks, will we profit from this? But the true leader and follower of God always asks, is this God's will? Is this the right thing to do? And verse 12 spells this out very clearly for us. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Well, we have a reluctant prophet here. Verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Jeremiah was 20 years of age when he, his prophetic ministry began, and he went beyond 40 years being a prophet in the southern kingdom during a difficult time to be a prophet. On paper growing up, it looked like Jeremiah would end up a priest in the line of his father and in the line of his grandfather. And a priest's duties were predictable. Everything was written in the law. There were daily sacrifices to offer, lepers to be examined, unclean people to be excluded from camp, cleansed people to be reinstated, festivals and ceremonies to be observed, the sanctuary to be cared for, and the law to be taught to people. The life of a prophet, however, was different. Because a prophet never knew from day to day what God was going to require them, what God was going to ask them to say or ask them to do. And a priest worked primarily to protect the past by monitoring uh, the sanctuary ministry. The prophet labored to change the present by calling people heading in the wrong direction back to God so that they could have a future. Prophets tried to reach and change hearts. In fact, you will find in the book of Jeremiah that the word heart is referred to 66 times. Priests really didn't preach to crowds that much. Prophets, on the other hand, that's basically all they did. And they even addressed entire nations. Priests all came from the same special tribe in Israel, from the Levites. Prophets could come from any tribe, and they had to go out and prove to everybody around them that they had a divine calling from God. In other words, their prophecies had to come true. Now, one final point I want to make is that priests were supported from the sacrifices and the offerings of people every week in worship. Prophets had no guaranteed form of income. And what made things even worse is that they delivered a message that people did not want to hear. A message of repentance, and and if they don't repent, they're going to be judged by God. And most people don't like those kinds of messages. They don't like negative or challenging messages. So the first thing they do is they withdraw their financial support. And then many times they will withdraw even attending worship services because that's how they show that they don't agree with the decision, especially something that a prophet might say. Verses 2 and 3 goes on. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Basically, in that entire bunch, that entire list there, Josiah was the only godly king. And he only was a godly king 18 of the 30 years he was a king uh, in Judah there. What happened was the law was discovered in the temple. It got brought to Josiah, read to him, and he went through a personal revival. So 18 of his 40 plus, almost 50 years of ministry for Jeremiah were under a godly king. The other 25 to 30 years, uh, he faced really tough, challenging circumstances. And 
under uh, uh, Josiah, he led the nation in reform. He tore down the idols. He, he repaired the temple. He restored worship there. But people still did not experience a heart-changing revival. Verses 4 and 5, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were set apart, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. When Jeremiah, who knew the temple worship drill well, because he watched his grandfather, he watched his father, and he probably thought he was going to be a priest. And all of a sudden, he finds out he's called to be a prophet, meaning to announce. And prophets, biblical prophets, you have to understand this. Over 90% of prophecy in the Bible is forthtelling. Only 10% is foretelling. We tend to think of prophecy as foretelling the future. That's not how the Bible depicts it. Nine out of 10 times, it's foretelling. It's revealing what God has already said in his word, what God has already said in his law. And the prophets were the police officers of the Old Testament. They were the one who were giving the spiritual speeding tickets. They were giving the spiritual summonses and, and court appointments. They're the ones enforcing the law. And Jeremiah looks at everything before him, all the work that he knows that God's going to ask of him. He looks at all the wickedness around him. Then he looks at his own personal weaknesses and he says, yeah, I'm not the right guy for this job. Verse 6, alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, the apostle Paul asked the question, who is equal to such a task? Who can be a minister? Who can be a pastor? Who can be a prophet? Who is equal to that? Who can do that? We all got baggage. Every one of us got skeletons in our closet. We could pick each other apart to death. We could do that with every Christian. Who's equal to the task? The rhetorical answer would be, no one is equal to the task. But Paul answers his own question in the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 5. He says, not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Verse 7. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah was to go wherever God sent him. He was to tell people whatever God said to him, and he was not to be afraid of people. You know, there's a common refrain among the woke in our culture who are pushing all this gender identity and sexual fluidity stuff. And if someone doesn't accept carte blanche, all that they believe, they will often say, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And then labels will be placed upon you like homophobe. You know, phobia is the Greek word for fear. So you must be afraid. That must be it. It's got to be fear. You're afraid of gay people. And I cannot recall all the times that I've been challenged as a pastor and pushed to become open and affirming on all the LGBTQA plus stuff and pushing even that's going on in our denomination among a small minority within our denomination. But it's always, what are you afraid of? As if it's my fears, my phobias by their narrative. That's what's keeping me from changing my view on this subject. And I have a standard response that I give every single one of these cases. No, I, I don't have fears like that. I can sit down and talk with anybody, minister, visit with anybody. I can, I can do all of that. But I do have one fear, and it's the fear of God. And what I want to see in my life is the word of God fulfilled. That's what I understand. Verses 9 through 12. 
Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I've appointed you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The Lord God came to me and said, What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. And the Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. In Israel, the almond trees would actually blossom in January before any other trees would blossom. And that would give the first indication to the Israelites that spring was coming. And it's interesting in the Hebrew language, there's no vowels in the Hebrew Bible. The Masoretes in the 11th century AD added vowel points to help us understand what those words are. But when they would hear those words or read those words, they would interpret what they meant based upon the context of what was being said. And play on words are common in the Hebrew language. And here, the radicals for an almond tree are the S sound, the Q sound, and the D sound. And uh, the radicals for the word watch or be aware is S-Q-D. Same ones. It's just that the almond tree is saked, and the to watch or be aware is soked. And the Lord uses this common Hebrew practice of play on words to impress upon Jeremiah that he being God, is constantly awake and watching over his word to see that it is fulfilled. Verses 13 through 16. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot. Oh, that is, I answered, it's tilting toward the, the, from the north. And the Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all the people in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Now there's a second metaphor, the boiling pot from the north that's used. And on its face, this doesn't appear to make any sense. The nations to the east, not the north, were the ones that were in conflict with each other and were striving for supremacy, and that's Assyria and Babylon. Now, what's important to understand also is that Babylon wasn't even a key player, not even a major one at the time that the prophet Jeremiah began his ministry. Assyria was. In fact, the Jewish rulers first turned to Egypt for help and even later to Assyria to fend off Babylon while failing to look to God, failing to trust God or seek God's help. And by the way, when the nations would come and attack uh, you know, Israel and Judah, they often came from the north because of the mountains that were to the east of Jerusalem and Judea. This is exactly what the Babylonians did when they overthrew Judah. And this is an amazing prophecy. Because again, at face value, people would hear that when Jeremiah would say, like, oh, that don't make any sense. They're not coming from the north. They're coming. It wouldn't make any sense to people. But that's exactly what happened. It was amazing. And verse 16 says again, I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness and in burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. The sin that God singled out was idolatry. And yes, people still worship at the temple, but Yahweh was merely one of the gods that was worshiped there. And some of the idols were even brought into the temple. If you want to read Ezekiel's chapter 8 and 9 on your own this week, it will detail that for you. And there were also these false prophets and these false priests who flourished at this time because they promised peace and they never called anyone to repentance. 
Now listen to what I'm about to say to you to see if any of this sounds familiar. The rich oppressed the poor and the courts would not defend the rights of the oppressed and the victims. Yet all the while, People attended and pretended to be devoted to Jehovah as they went to worship. Here's the deal. When a nation turns from worshiping the true God, its people begin to turn on one another. And this is exactly what happened in Judah. This is what we see happening in America right now. And sadly, we even see some of this happening in churches across America. And folks, you have to understand that is right out of Satan's playbook. It's right from the pit of hell. And our women are going to learn about that in the morning break Bible study on spiritual armor. That's exactly what they're going to be learning. Verses 17 through 19. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, be, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Get yourself ready. In order to work, in order to run, in order to defend oneself, men in the ancient world had to tie up their loose robes with their belt. It was called girding your loins. The New American Standard Bible, which is a more literal translation, says get ready for action. Jeremiah, get ready for action. In our society, we would say, get ready, boys. You know, roll up your sleeves. You know, put your big boy pants on or your big girl pants on or tighten your belt. Get your head screwed on straight. Let's get her done, you know. Let's roll. Let's get ready to work. Well, Jeremiah obeyed God, and God protected him. But he became one of the most unpopular prophets in Israel's history. Again, as compared to human standards, Jeremiah's ministry was a complete failure. But by measured by God's will, he was a total success. Folks, let me tell you. It is never easy to stand alone. Believe me, I have done it more times than I can count in my life and my ministry. I once even faced off with five very powerful religious leaders in our denomination. And folks, it is never easy to resist the crowd. It's never easy to be out of step with the, the prevailing cultural trends and cultural worldviews. It's never easy to go against the grain by not accepting the philosophies and the values of the world. But here's the deal. Jeremiah lived this kind of lonely, heartbreaking life for nearly 50 years because he loved God more than he loved the world. And where do you stand on this continuum of loving God or loving the world? And who is it in your life that determines what you're going to do with your life and what you're going to do every day? Is it the world or is it God? And here's the point. Who is it in your life that gets your devotion and your obedience? Because your allegiance determines where your love truly is. You know, in Matthew 16, verse 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. In light of Jesus' very sobering words here, in light of his instruction, what are you going to do? Will you conform 
and continue to conform to this world? Or will you take up the cross and follow Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to study this wonderful prophet, Jeremiah, a man who was so lonely and frankly abused and everything that went on in his life. They say he had one convert to show for all those years of ministry. And yet, God, he was such a successful spiritual leader. We know, God, you're calling us in our times to be like the prophet Jeremiah. And the thing that set him apart was his love for you, not his love for the world. So, God, may that be of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.